Father, we recognize as we come to a time in your word this morning that your, there is power in your word. Lord, not just for information, but actually for transformation in our lives. And so, Lord, we come to your word with both a sense of reverence, but also with a hunger that you would have your way in us this morning. Lord, I, I trust that you've already been preparing our hearts, but Lord, we look to do our part of paying attention to what it is that you're highlighting to us. So Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you lead us? And would you guide us? In Jesus' name, amen. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8 say this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Most of you would know that there are a team of seven of us heading to Mozambique this coming week. For me, this is my first ever missions trip, my first time in Africa, and actually my first time serving some of the world's poorest people. If I'm honest, it's not something that I necessarily saw myself doing. When Ros and Steve asked about us having a team go to Mozambique, and that was kind of towards the latter part of last year, as a pastoral team, we were putting our heads together and wondering well, who might go? And we put, if you remember, an expression of interest around September, October last year. And, you know, we'd ponder and, well, who, who could go? And it wasn't going to be at a time of year that Andrew could go because he and Ali already had their long service leave booked. And um, for Adam and Steph, it wasn't um, exactly the right time of life for them. But I didn't consider at all that myself that I would go. I, I mean, I have to be really honest with you. I didn't even sit there and pray about it. I, I'm like, well, I wonder who's going to go. I wonder who's going to lead the team. <laughs> and it took God getting my attention through a number of things for him to say, <clears throat> I'm, I'm sending you. Um, and I mean, as soon as I paid attention and as soon as I listened to his voice, it was very clear that this is what he was asking me to do. I say that all by way of, I'm not somebody who has always thought of myself kind of on the, the overseas missions field. But it's probably not surprising to you that as a result of this wrestle and God getting my attention, I've certainly always been somebody who has a heart for justice and, um, I mean, Justin will tell you, in our younger years, he used to have to do things like hide the um, letters to the editor from me because I'd get very riled up about them in the old days when you got newspapers in print. Um, 
my university friends, when we'd watch television and there'd be moments of injustice or things on there, I would be talking to the television and they used to tease me mercilessly about it. And so justice has, some, it has always been something that is close to my heart. I just didn't necessarily anticipate that that might be expressed in an overseas missions trip. But all of this to say that it's probably not surprising to you that this year in particular, it's been on my mind a lot to think about, well, what does doing justice in the kingdom of God look like? What, what does the Lord require of us? And an even bigger picture for me, and particularly because we've been doing this distinct marker series, is well, how and why is justice enacted by Christians different and distinct from the justice carried out by the world? Because there are plenty of good people who don't know Jesus doing amazing things in the areas of charitable work uh, for the poor and the needy. And I'm very aware that there are issues around injustice and inequality that are complex and weighty and very messy. You know, often um, considering areas of social justice can send us down rabbit holes and bunny trails and stir up passion and emotion that cause us to think that everybody should think the way that we think and be worried about the same causes that we're worried about. And when we talk about things like social justice, there are so many shoulds and oughts and there's the frailty of our human response. And so I've been wrestling through all of these things. You know, what, why is it different, Lord, for us as your people to respond to this call to enact justice? You know, what I'm, I'm hoping to do today is not just, because this is not a sermon to recruit you all to overseas missions, although it would be fantastic if everyone had an opportunity to step outside of our bubble and see how other people live. This is not a sermon to recruit you to the community meals, although, again, if you get me started on that, I could tell you that that is an amazing opportunity to minister to some of the poor and needy just in our community. Even last week, I had a man that I was serving a meal to, and it was a tuna casserole. Like, it was a delicious tuna casserole, but it was a simple tuna casserole. And as I loaded that heaped spoonful of steaming pasta and tuna goodness onto his plate, he said, I have been looking forward to this all day. This was his only meal in Canberra. But it, this is not a sermon about just trying to pigeonhole you into a particular action. What I guess I'm wanting to do today is to look at more detail as into what does doing justice, loving kindness and mercy and walking humbly with our God look like in the midst of our day-to-day -day life, in our family, in our workplaces, in our community. And yes, we will consider overseas missions and the global and domestic um, aid situation because we can't ignore those things. But what I really want us to do is to pull this down into our lives so that we can respond. But before I get there, 
it's important for us to note that whenever we are talking as Christians about doing justice, loving kindness and mercy and walking humbly with our God, our starting point is never with ourselves and it's always with God. Because even if you have a cursory read through scripture, it reveals our God is a God of righteousness that he is a God who loves justice and that his eyes are on the poor and the needy. The late pastor and theologian Tim Keller describes God's justice as scandalous in his book, Generous Justice. He said this in his book. He said, Our God presents himself as the defender of the widow, the father to the fatherless, In virtually all ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through the elite, through kings and priests, not through outcasts. But Yahweh takes his stand with the orphan, the widows, the foreigner, and the poor. Throughout scripture, God makes it incredibly clear that his heart for justice is towards those four vulnerable groups. Over and over again, he calls, calls his people to represent his goodness and his kindness through enacting or doing justice and steadfast love and mercy. And so we cannot miss that this is God's heart. So back to Micah 6.8. It's definitely Micah 6.8. On, on its own is a scripture that I think a lot of Christians know. It's, it's kind of one of those scriptures that can end up on mugs and tote bags and T-shirts and things like that. But I really want us to consider this verse in its context this morning to just give us a little bit of a fuller picture. So Micah was a prophet in a time when Israel and Judah were really making a complete mess of things and they were violating their covenant with God. You'll find through most of Micah um, references to the fact that they had been committing grave injustices to favour the rich and to deprive the poor. And both he and his contemporary Isaiah, so he was writing at the same time as Isaiah, had much to say to Israel about their attempts on outward appearances of religious activity such as sacrifices and tithing and fasting while they were still oppressing the vulnerable. And of course we see Jesus doing the same in his time, calling the Pharisees out on all of their religious activities whilst at the same time oppressing the poor. But one of the ways that God measures the righteousness and justice present in a society, according to scripture, is based on how it treats these four vulnerable groups, the orphan, widows, the foreigner or the sojourner, and the poor. And whilst those those groups are still vulnerable groups in our society today, in ancient times they were particularly vulnerable. They had no way of providing for themselves. And there's not time for me to go into it today, but I would encourage you to look at all the ways that God set about, even within law, to make sure that these people were provided for. You will remember in the book of Ruth that Ruth got to glean the edge of the fields um, because they were left for the poor to be able to come and get food and bread. Um, And so God, throughout Scripture makes provision for these people. 
And what was happening was that Israel was failing miserably to keep these specific laws, among others, to make sure that the poor um, and the needy were being provided for. And so Micah's prophecies were filled with warnings about the fact that God was going to enact his own divine justice and judgment against them for allowing this to happen by bringing in the rising Assyrian Empire. And that leads to the, eventually to the exile um, of Israel. But woven through Micah, as is always God's way, even in amongst all of this, were these promises of redemption. And in fact, many um, there, are, there are prophetic um, promises within Micah f- for the coming Messiah through the line of David, our Jesus. So that just gives you a little bit of background as to what, um, where is Micah writing to? What is going on in Israel's history at the time that he's writing? And so Micah 6.8 is preceded by this age-old question, what do I need to do to have peace with God? What must I do to be able to come before God? And it's a rhetorical question posed by Micah because he then goes on to outline this very deliberately satirical set of proposed sacrifices that start um, with things like um, absurd amounts of... um, oil and um, animal sacrifices and end with the outrage of child sacrifice, which was completely against God's law, uh, the way that many of the pagan cultures around Israel um, sacrificed to their gods. And so we're not to look at these set of satirical suggestions as anything other than the way that Micah is using to highlight the foolishness of trying to achieve divine justice with a big enough sacrifice. It's not possible. It's not possible to get divine justice to be able to be in right relationship with God with a big enough sacrifice. And he was highlighting to them that they would never be able to earn that. And then he prophesies Micah 6.8 to them. He says... He has told you, O man, what is good. In other words, he has not hidden this from you. This is very clear. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, or other translations might say steadfast love or mercy, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Not thousands of rams, not tens of thousands of rivers of oil or your firstborn children, God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants relationship. He wants you to value what he values and to walk humbly and dependently upon him. Every aspect of this instruction in Micah is relational. The vertical relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with people. And isn't that a reflection of what then Jesus said as the two greatest commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. And these two things are inextricably linked. And so Israel's oppression of the vulnerable demonstrated just how far their hearts were from God. What I want us to pick up before we start to get to some of the practicalities in our life is that what Micah 6.8 is trying to tell us is that a humble, dependent relationship on God is the context for doing justice and loving kindness and mercy. 
And that it is by this that as God's people we are called to represent his heart and his goodness to mankind. We cannot separate justice from the one who is just. We cannot do justice apart from the one who is justice. Our hope as followers of Jesus is not based in our own abilities to act and change the world, but rather it's grounded in the reality that God is the God of justice and he has promised that he will usher in his kingdom of justice and righteousness. And so therefore this is the context for us of doing justice as a Christian. And this is a clear distinction that sets us apart from other good charitable works. Now I don't want you to hear me saying that we are not to participate in enacting justice or that when we participate in and do good acts of um, charity, that we are not making a difference. But our doing as Christians is informed by the truth that as followers of Jesus, it's him who is going to change the world, not us. Him through us, but we are completely and humbly dependent upon him. True justice as a Christian never begins with our own reaction to the needs of the world. That's more activism. Instead, true justice in God's kingdom begins by knowing the God of justice and then responding to his heart. And at a most basic level, if you hear nothing else this morning, the answer to why we should be concerned with the vulnerable and the needy is because God is. That's his heart and we are his people and we reflect his heart. And amazingly, here we are, ordinary people, broken ourselves and away from perfect and yet he has invited us into his process of enacting justice to usher in his kingdom. So with that as our framework... We're starting with who God is, not who we are. That we're remembering that our heart for justice is about relationally being in tune with him, with the heart of the Father, and then listening to his leading in our life. Remembering that we are not the ones who actually have the power to change the world, only he does. I want us to consider this application in our own life. What does it look like to do justice, to love kindness and mercy and to walk humbly with God in the midst of our day-to-day lives? And there's not really any better person to look at than Jesus himself. In both his actions and his words, he expressed the Father's heart perfectly to do justice, love kindness and mercy and make provision for the most vulnerable and despised and rejected. He drew near to the sick, to the outcasts, to women, to sinners, tax collectors, adulterers, prostitutes, to Samaritans and Gentiles. And he also demonstrated his justice, loving kindness and mercy towards his disciples, his family and his friends. And so he is our model. And I just want to turn to Luke 18 this morning. This is a very familiar passage to most people. It's the account of Jesus' 
encounter with the blind beggar on the road to Jericho, um, near Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. And so I'm just going to read verses 35 to 43 this morning. And then what I want to do is just pull out three principles from this that we can learn on how Jesus did this and how that might translate to our lives. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So the first principle that I want us to notice this morning is that Jesus stopped and he drew near. If there was any time in Jesus' ministry that he could have been forgiven for rushing on past, it was now. Because he was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He was fully aware that he was heading towards his death and the fulfillment of his mission. And that mission could inarguably have been considered way more weighty than the needs of one blind man. But Jesus didn't stand at a distance. He stopped and he drew near. And in obedience to the Father... He entered this man's story. Jesus throughout his ministry continually demonstrated deep value for the one, for the individual. He demonstrated God's justice, loving kindness and mercy. And he demonstrated in such a way that we cannot but see that it does not sit back, but it gets involved. That in fact it's not possible to be a lover of mercy from a distance. Biblical justice is about being involved in one another's stories and extending the invitation into God's redemption story. And I've been pondering this quite a lot because I I think it bears pointing out that enacting justice and loving kindness and mercy in biblical times was very different to now. For God's people then... The injustices that they saw and were aware of were the ones that occurred around them in their community. And they met those needs as a community. In our generation of globalisation, the needs around us, quite frankly, can be overwhelming. Because we are not just bombarded or aware of the needs of injustice in our own local sphere In this information age where breaking news can be received in an instant, we can be flooded with images and news of injustice and atrocities and poverty all around the world, requesting our time and our resources. And those needs can sometimes be so great and so many that the sheer overload of it can actually be numbing. And so what ends up happening is we don't do anything at all, much less engage in people's stories. 
I'm not for a moment advocating this morning that we should only respond to the needs in our own backyard. However, when we're considering what it means to draw near, one question that I think is worth asking ourselves is, are we stopping for the one in the relationships and the opportunities that God brings across our paths to enact justice where we are? The second thing that Jesus does is that he listens to this man's needs. He asks him, what do you want me to do for you? This seems like such a bizarre question for Jesus to ask the man. Well, what would you like me to do for you? Well, I'm blind and you've got the ability to heal. And I don't want to oversimplify this at all this morning, but I think that we can see a couple of important truths about the way that Jesus interacted with this man that we can pull into our day-to-day lives. Because Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you, allows the man to think through his needs for a moment. The truth is that when we're caught up in our own misery, we can actually sometimes not be fully aware of what it is that we need. Did he need arms for the day? Did he just need somebody to give him money so that he could buy his next meal? Did he need a word of encouragement? Or did he just need simply someone to sit with him and keep him company? But given the opportunity to state his need, he says to Jesus, I want to see. What Jesus' simple question does is it restores choice to this man. His disability would have removed all choices from him. His dignity, his ability to choose for himself, to feed himself. He was completely dependent on people's charity. And Jesus treats him with respect and he empowers him with choice and the freedom to express for himself what he needs. If there was anybody who had the ability and authority to tell this man what he needed, it was Jesus. And yet he offered him a choice and the opportunity to work it out for himself. Now, this is pure supposition on my part. But I wonder what would have happened if instead of saying, I want to see, the blind man said, well, I would like a meal or I'd like some money, or um, I'd like somebody to sit with me, would, would he actually have missed out on the fullness of what Jesus had for him? How does this apply to us? Well, it applies to us because we are not called to make assumptions about or control the decisions of others, even when we are doing it in the name of justice. It's important to be willing to hear their story and to withhold our own judgment about what we think they need unless we've been invited to do so. The reality is that it's actually arrogant to assume that we know what somebody needs. Probably one of the most poignant lessons in my life in this regard was when I was a new graduate occupational therapist. I was 21 Fresh out of uni, I had all the right assessment tools and treatment applications. And one of my first jobs was working in an adult rehab um, setting. And a lady came in and she'd had a stroke. It was quite a significant stroke. Even after her time of recovery on the ward, she was being discharged with quite significant disability. And so as an occupational therapist, I'd done an assessment of her home. 
I'd assessed her ability to look after herself. We'd done some modifications to the house and I was sitting down with her and her husband to step through all the decisions that I'd made about what they needed. And one of them was about showering assistance because she wasn't able to shower herself. They were very patient with me as a young, eager, 21-year-old OT. And her husband, because her speech was affected, carefully explained to me that they would like to manage her showering for themselves, thank you. Because this was one part for them as a married couple that was something that was intimate and it was something that he wanted to do for his wife and serve her. I hadn't done anything wrong per se. I'd correctly assessed her physical limitations. I just hadn't considered that she might have a different solution. What I didn't do was pause and ask her what she needed and instead rushed in with my own set of solutions. It reminded me of a time when my daughter Beth had the opportunity to serve in one of their inner city missions here in Canberra um, on a school holiday um, program as a teenager. And that gave her the opportunity to sit with people because it was kind of like a drop-in centre and to hear people's stories. And she sat with a woman one day and this woman's biggest expressed need was to be able to shave her legs and that she couldn't afford the equipment to do so. And so the next day, Beth was able to go in with a full shaving kit, shaving cream, women's razors, nice body lotion to put on her legs afterwards because she'd taken the time to enter this woman's story and find out what she needed. Doing justice and loving kindness and mercy is not only expressed by doing and giving, but also through listening and walking humbly. Can I invite the worship team back up at this point? And so finally, the third principle that we can learn from Jesus in this encounter with the blind beggar this morning is that God got the glory. John 5 verse 19 says this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus is not saying here that he doesn't have free choice. He's not saying that the Father is controlling him. What he's describing is this intimate connection between him and the Father so that he is fully submitted to the will of the Father. All of Jesus' thoughts and actions had their source in the Father. So even as he was heading towards Jerusalem to his crucifixion, I like to imagine that there was some interaction with the Father as he was passing by this blind man on the road and the Father saying, yep, this one. Yep, this one, stop. This one. Jesus' obedience flowed from being in the heart of the Father, from being in relationship and being dependent upon the Father and continually listening to him for his revelation. This is what walking humbly with God looks like when we are looking to enact justice. We record some of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As this blind man was made well, and the words that Jesus uses here for well, made well, is sozo. It literally means saved. So he was not only physically healed that day, but spiritually set free. He and the observers around him glorify God. If we're honest, our motivations for doing justice and loving kindness and mercy are not always quite so pure as wanting God to get the glory. Sometimes if I'm honest, I do justice because I feel like I've fulfilled my obligations or because I'd like to get the glory for my good deeds. But to enact justice on God's behalf is so much more than just ticking off a to-do list. What we're called to do is walk humbly with our God, representing his goodness, his kindness and his justice, and to see him get the glory. And so today, I just want to leave you with three questions to ask ourselves. Anytime we're given an opportunity for doing justice and loving kindness and mercy, whether we're in Maputo, Mozambique, or in Fishwick, Canberra, where is the Father asking you to stop and draw near? How can you leave room for someone to share their story and express their need? And what is your motivation and who will get the glory? Can I ask you to stand this morning? Heavenly Father, our starting place for everything is always you. We, your people, have so freely received from you, Lord, that which we could not do for ourselves. And Lord, the only right response to your incredible gift to us Lord, is to lay down our lives for you and to live humbly and dependently upon you. Lord, we acknowledge as your people that we don't have far to see injustice and inequality and the oppression, Lord, of the poor and the vulnerable and the needy. And Father, we want to acknowledge this morning that as people called by your name, we are not to turn a blind eye to that. But Father, there is a limitation in our human response. And so we place our hope in the promises that you are restoring all things. That you are a God of justice and mercy and kindness. And that by your Holy Spirit, You enable us to in some part represent you, Lord. 
to the communities and to the people you put around us. Lord, I pray that in this coming week, you would give each of us opportunities, Lord, to see as you see, to be about our Father's business, enacting your justice, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would not be so busy rushing about that, Lord, we would not stop for the one, that we would not pause, Lord, and enter into people's stories, the people that you place around us. Would you help us, Lord, not to be so arrogant as to presume that we know what they need, but, Lord, to extend and invite them, Lord, to know you. And, Lord, I ask that you would help us always to keep before us our primary motivation, Lord, that as an act of worship, Lord, you would get the glory. So would you be amongst us, Lord? Would you keep transforming us, Lord, and doing the work that only you could do? But, Lord, we choose as your people to set our hands to those things that you put before us. In Jesus' name.